It's good to see you this Sunday morning, and uh, happy to worship together with all of you here. I just got back from a visit with my uh, wife's family in Virginia, but there's no place like Texas, and uh, I'm happy to be home. So, we have been in a series called Apologia, and um, it's a series, Apologia, Apologia, it can go both ways. Um, It's derivative from that Greek word, um, logos, which is a word. Apologos is to defend with our words, defend what we believe, to explain what we believe. Uh, lots of times people, not only are they atheists, but ma- many times there's misunderstandings of what it is that Christians exactly believe. And throughout history, Christians have undertaken to explain exactly what we believe. No, we don't eat people. We're not cannibals here. That's what people actually thought about Christians, probably because they heard about the communion and the Lord's Supper. They eat the the body of Jesus, and there was confusion. So really, what I'm trying to do is explain what it is that we really believe, um, so that that, uh, more than anything, Christianity is adequately conveyed. And along the way, I'm using, uh, we're using as a guidebook, um, a book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. The Reason for God, I've read this book myself, and I'm very impressed by it. And today, what we're going to talk about is the knowledge of God. Now, let me just pause here for a moment. When we were talking about doing this series um, on apologetics, and we did it, we're doing it in the middle of deep summer, it's kind of a hard time to tackle an apologetic series, a very abstract and philosophical subject, trying to prove the existence of God, trying to prove Christianity. Um, And at the same time, you know, when turnout is a little bit lower and we have family services and our youth group in in service, I have to somehow distill abstract philosophical ideas and be able to speak to audiences ranging from, you know, 40s to, you know, teens. So that, I think, is a true test because whether you are 45 or 12, I think we all have common sense And this understanding, that just sounds right, that makes sense. That's the nerve that I want to put my finger on. And I hope that I'm rising to that challenge because you can talk about complicated things with gobbledygook. If I can convey profound things with simplicity, that I think is the true challenge. That's what I want to do today. As we talk about really a, a complex, it could be complex, overly complex But really, it could be so simple that a child could understand this. And what I'd like to talk about today is the knowledge of God. How can we know that there is a God? How can we know that God exists? You know, for our purposes here at Woven, I I know pretty much everybody here is a Christian or part of a Christian family. If anything, you might learn something today. You might learn how to explain the Christian faith better um, to your coworkers. As we talk about the knowledge of God today, I'd like to use a progression of thought that I find in the sermon by Paul in Acts chapter 17. So, if you find that you'd like to convey the gospel message to a coworker, it's lunchtime, you're on your lunch break, and they say, so why really, how can you be a Christian? In this scientific age, how can you possibly have any belief in an invisible God or a force? Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 17. And that's what I'd like to do today. Turn to Acts chapter 17 and... Follow the logic of Paul's thought. And as we trace his logic 
That, I believe, is a logic and a pathway, not just to God, but to Christ. And I'm going to talk along three headings following this logic, a progressive logic. The first is, what do we know? Not, what do we know, but what exactly do we know? What can we know? What is knowable? And the second question, or actually the second heading, is closer than you know. God is actually closer than we know. And the third is, but how do we know? It's still that lingering doubt. How do we know that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? And so there's that progression. What do we know? Secondly, closer than you know. And third, how do we know? And I'm going to begin with that first heading, what exactly do we know? How can we know that there is a God? What do we know about the existence of God? Um, Here I want to begin with Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Verse 22. As we begin Paul's famous sermon on Mars Hill. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, or in other words, Mars Hill, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And so, whatever this unknown God, that this one kind of coverall notion of God, you have a God of the water, a God of the sky, a God of war. You have a God of the elements. But this is the unknown God, the coverall. This is the God that I would like to expound to you, the coverall God, so to speak. And that phrase, what you worship in ignorance, you're worshiping an unknown God, something, but you don't know exactly what it is. That, I think, there's a reason why um, so many churches will call themselves Mars Hill, because there's something so postmodern about this statement. You're worshiping something, even if you are an atheist. If you're listening to my voice through the podcast, you don't believe in God, I would argue that you're still worshiping something in ignorance. If you're you're an atheist and you're or agnostic, you just what are you talking about? I don't go to church. I would argue you're still worshiping something in ignorance. Let me kind of explain how I come to this um, point. I want to trace our history three generations back. Three generations ago. We can talk about the modern period where our grandparents grew up in a modern age, the modern age pre-World War II. And during this modern age, we discovered that science actually had all of the answers to the way the universe works. We could figure out how things work by the use of mathematics, by the use of logic and ration, rationality. Um, We discovered mechanistic uh, processes. If you turn this gear, it will turn that gear, which will turn another gear, which in turn will turn, you know, will power a car. We learned how to use fuel, fossil fuels, to uh, provide combustion and energy. We became the first cause. There no longer needed to be a first cause. We learned how to be the first cause. And so there was a famous conversation that took place between the scientist Pierre Laplace in France and Napoleon, the Emperor Napoleon. 
And as they conversed, the scientist showed Napoleon his grand scheme of how the universe works, the cosmos. This is how the world works, this great big map rolled out, and these are the ways the heavenly bodies move. And as Napoleon looked at this, he said, wow, well, that's fascinating, but where does God fit in all of this? Where does the first cause, the prime mover, where does God come into this? And Laplace thought and he said, God, I have no need for that hypothesis. We don't need God. We have science. Why do we need God when science can prove and can basically solve any equation and what it cannot solve yet will figure it out? There's a sense that what there's the fog of knowing. What we know, we trust one day. What we don't know, we trust one day we will know. We will understand. And everything that is unknowable will one day be proven by science. This is the modern position. This is the modern worldview. It's not a position we adopt. It's just the way people thought. Something cataclysmic happened, however. And what that thing was was, as I've said before, World War II. World War I and World War II. And this was the, ne- the, the, the previous generation. This is the second generation after our grandfather's. And then, you know, the third generation, the second generation, you have our parents. Well, not in all cases. But you have old folk who might have read about World War II, might have lived through Vietnam, might have seen that science, for all of its excellence and everything that it can prove, we somehow discovered and tapped into something called the great evil. Yes, science disproves the need for God. Yes, science shows us that we ourselves are the first cause, but at the same time, it's almost like we unlocked a dungeon, and out of that dungeon came the Holocaust, came the atom bomb, came incredible pollution as a result of the Industrial Revolution. We build great machines, and we're destroying our environment, and all of these things. Science actually has caused great evil, or at least allowed and facilitated tremendous evil. So the second generation might say, and this is the postmodern generation, the postmodern generation might say, we've read about World War II, we've seen, I mean, I myself got to see with my own eyes, Auschwitz. We've seen tremendous evil. So basically, like our grandparents, like the generation before, God, I don't, you know, My father taught me, we don't need that hypothesis. We don't need to believe in God. But there's definitely something in the world that is evil. Evil is a real thing. And I've looked it in the eye. Now you have, after the postmodern generation, the millennial generation. And I know that there's younger people here. How many people were born after the year 2000? Raise your hand. I want to see how far this goes. So after the year 2000, you were considered the millennial generation. Is there anybody that was born in the 90s? Raise your hand. Please, raise your hand. Okay. So the millennial generation, basically taking a card from their playbook of their parents and great-grandparents will say the same thing. God, we have no need for that conclusion, for that hypothesis. I don't believe in God. We don't believe in God. Science has proven everything. We don't believe in God, but here's the thing. We've read Lord of the Rings, or we've watched the movie, and we know when he says, when Sam Gamgee says, 
There is good in the world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. We watched Hotel Rwanda and we said, wow, I got to do something. I'm going to go and save Africa. And we have this notion of evil, but on the other side, millennials also have this notion of good. Strong sense of justice, a strong sense of compassion, a strong sense of uh, social justice that we have to do right in the world. So basically what's happened over the course of three generations, we to this day don't believe in God, people don't believe in God, but somehow we believe in ethics. And we've arrived in this place where uh, in the beginning we don't believe in God, but now we definitely believe that there's evil and we believe that there's good. So the modern mind doesn't need God. The postmodern mind doesn't need God but believes that there's evil. The millennial mind doesn't believe in God but believes there's evil and good. My question is, right conclusion, there is evil and good in the world. This I agree with, but show me your work. How do you arrive at this conclusion that there's evil and good? And you can see the struggle go on. I, evil and good, well, prove it. How do you know that there's good? Well, you know what? Let me show you this video. This video shows perfectly the struggle in the postmodern and the millennial mind. This kind of struggle to grasp what, how, how can I prove that there's good and that there's evil? And really, you can't. You can't. Let's watch this video. Let me just say real quick before you play, press the play button, um, I try to vet our movies very carefully. This is a clean clip, although it is from Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And... Um, you should be okay. It should be safe. So go ahead. Hit play. I'm going to kill that guy. Of course. I'm a Terminator. Listen to me very carefully, okay? You're not a Terminator anymore, all right? You got that? Why? You just can't go around killing people. Why? What do you mean, why? Because you can't. Why? Because you just can't, okay? Trust me on this. Why? <laughs> Look, I'm going to go get my mom. Why? Is you going <laughs> to... Ah, that's great. That, right there, is the perfect example of the postmodern response. You just can't go around killing people. Now, the question of the Terminator, which operates on logic and ration is a legitimate question, why? And you can see this, the, the humor of this young postmodern, I mean, if anybody represents it, it's, that, it's, that, it's John Connor, trying to teach a cold, rational, heartless, killing machine ethics. How are you going to teach ethics to a rational person in a postmodern age? It's impossible. In a postmodern and a millennial age, we believe, we believe that you just can't go around killing people. Why? Well, um, I got it. It's against the law. Well, Terminator says that, that the law actually, uh, there, there is provision in the law for killing people. And besides, human law has not always been right. You humans have changed your laws multiple times, admitting that you've chosen, that you've done wrong. This almost asks the question, what comes first, law or ethics? What comes first? Is law the final sayer? Let me, I mean, you know, just, you know, the, the lawyer in, in our audience, just nod, nod your head yes or no. Is law always right? It's not. 
We have made imperfect laws. So the Terminator says, why? That makes no sense. Law, you can't kill people because it's against the law. It's not, it doesn't hold water. Well, you can't kill people, why? Because, uh, because, um, because it's against natural law. And here we get philosophical. We try to appeal to the higher order of nature. And we say, nature just shows us that, you know, um, well, why? That makes no sense because the lion will eat the lamb. And the dead leaf butterfly will be deceptive and try to prove that it's not a butterfly so it doesn't get eaten. In other words, it lies. You cannot learn ethics from nature because nature, what is good for humans, is not necessarily good for nature. Natural law, it doesn't really hold. So you have the Terminator saying, why? That makes no sense. And then John Connor saying, you you just can't because, uh, you you can't because... um, Humanism, because we, 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 we're, everybody has rights. We tolerate everybody. You, you, you have, they have the freedom and the right to live. And the Terminator says, well, why? That makes no sense, because even that, what does that stand on? The, 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 the dignity of the human being. Well, yeah, pe- that's right, Terminator. People have dignity. Where does the dignity come from? Where does dignity come from? We as human beings cannot bestow dignity upon ourselves. It must come from a higher power. It must come from above. That's why when Christianity teaches in the beginning that God created us in His image, this is the beginning of human rights and human freedoms. We are created in the image of God. Of regardless of our color, our background, our ethnic, ethnicity. But without that Genesis narrative, we have no foundation. And in the end, we're, we're, we're even secular ethicists are pretty much saying, we don't believe in God. But you just can't go around killing people. Why? Well, and that's the dilemma. Basically, we are still worshiping something in ignorance. Getting back to what Paul says We are still worshiping something when we claim that there are ethics, good and evil. What we're saying is that there's something called, there's, there's metaphysics. What that means is we believe that there is a higher law. There is a law above law. And when we, once we start talking business like that, listen, you're talking the language of God. If you want to hold continually that there is no God, You might as well say, darn right, there is no reason. I have no reason. I have no answer for why we can't go around killing people. In other words, if you believe that there is good in the world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for, why not just say that there is a God? I'll say that one more time. And that I don't get from myself. That's not original. That's, That's from Tim Keller's logic. I think is a great train of thought. His logic is quite simply, if you're going to argue that there's good and evil in the world, which every postmodern, every millennial today likes to do, you know, I believe I stand for justice and social compassion and tolerance, you might as well say there is a God. And that's the first step. That's the first step. Would you dare consider believing in God? That's the first fill in the blank. And we haven't even gotten to Christ yet. But would you consider believing that there's a God? Because whenever you say there's a good and there's an evil in the world, you're knocking on the door, you're knocking on the door of the divine. You're believing that there is something higher. Might as well just say, okay, there is a God. 
Bono sings that famous song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, which is the mantra of the postmodern generation. Well, what would happen if you found what you're looking for? What would you do if you finally found everything that you're looking for? What would you do if you finally found the good that is behind good? And you found the just that is really behind everything that you know to be just? What if you found mercy behind the merciful and you found kind behind kindness? And we're beginning to talk about Christ here. Would you not give your entire life to that? Man, I, I, I constantly go back to my college days. I didn't know what good and evil was. I found I didn't even know what I was standing on. And I didn't know if there was a God anymore. And I didn't know if there was a good. But I knew the day I found it, I would die for it. I knew that the day I found it, I would give my entire life for it. Friends, would you not give everything once you have discovered what that good, what that just, what that, who this God is, would you consider believing in God? And would you consider giving your entire life and even death to this, to that notion, to that notion of God? We're not yet at Christ, but we're in a better place than we were 15 minutes ago. Okay, I believe in God. Maybe there is a God. I do believe in good, of course. I do believe in evil. Maybe, maybe I do believe in God. But Christianity business haven't convinced me yet. Let me read on in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would see God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He's not far. For in him we live, move, and exist as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. And this is the second heading. Closer than you know. What Paul is saying here is God is not far from each one of us. Many people, especially in the 60s, during this postmodern age, wanted to break away from the church, break away from home, and so they started seeking God. Because postmoderns, we, we believe that there's evil if you believe there's evil, then you must believe that there's good. You're looking for something. Postmoderns are the spiritual generation looking for something. They will travel the world looking for something. How many hookah bars and places in, in, the, in the Silk Road and in, in Nepal and in these different, you know, these different places that missionaries travel around the world and you'll find some old burnt-out Westerner strung out on some mind-altering thing in the search for God, dude. And the reality is we search so far for that black hole in our hearts to fill it. We're looking for God, but the thing is, He's closer than you know. Closer than you know. We look 
for God anywhere but Texas. I get it. I understand where you're coming from. I really do. But the thing is, if we look everywhere else except in Texas, (laughs) you won't find God. Just kidding. Um, If you look everywhere else except in what you know, everywhere else except the community, everywhere else except the family, the place of belonging, you're trying to divorce faith and the family. You're trying to divorce belief and the community. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say is too many people are trying to find belief in a vacuum, in a social vacuum, as if it's an intellectual endeavor that somehow you can just go out there in the world, find God, and solve that equation. Friends, a big part of believing is belonging, and that's the fill in the blank. Belonging is a big part of believing. Everybody who comes to faith, even if they come to faith alone and in a vacuum, eventually yearn to be part of a community, and that's where the faith grows. You will not solve the God postulate intellectually by yourself in a dungeon. (laughs) Eureka, I found it. There is a God. It doesn't work that way. Faith comes, believing comes by belonging. Belonging. The ethicist Stanley Hauervoss, I I love what he says here. Basically, he's saying that you can't believe in a vacuum. Your belief grows as you are part of a community, as you're part of a family. And he says, set out in the world, you know, like these people on the hippie trail. Set out in the world with no family, without story of and for the self. We will simply be captured by the reigning ideologies of the day. Family is morally crucial for existence. Without the family, without the community, without the church, we have no way to know what it means to be historic beings. The refusal to ask our children to believe as we believe, to live as we live, to act as we act, it's a betrayal that derives, these are strong words, he says it's a betrayal that derives from moral cowardice. Essentially, what Stanley Hauervoss is saying is that when you believe, it comes in the context of a family and a community and a church. The second reflection, the first was, would I consider believing in God? The second question is, would I consider believing in the church? Look, I know the church is not perfect. I know. I know that we pastors make a lot of mistakes That's because we were trained in history and theology and translation and exegesis, blah, blah. But we don't know management. We don't know operations. We don't know human resourcing. We don't know social etiquette lots of times. We're we're kind of bookworm people that, you know, haven't matured in more of the social graces. And then we get put in front of communities to lead these churches. Churches are not perfect places. Churches are not perfect institutions, but the church is where belief is nurtured. Would you consider believing in God? But the second question is, would you consider believing in the church? Would you consider believing in the church? Our faith cannot be nurtured in a vacuum. I truly believe that. All right, so so we're kind of rounding third base. So, Pastor, you're telling us that there is a God? You're telling us that because we believe in good and evil, we must believe in God. Now you're also telling us, secondly, 
the path to knowing God is through the church. Yes, it is through the church. It's through tradition. You know, I'll, I'll share this with you before I move on to the third and last heading. You know, I've, I've read different books about the different religious traditions in Christianity. Um, I'm intrigued by what Eastern Orthodoxy teaches. I'm intrigued by the theology of Catholicism. Um, I like Reformed theology, but at the same time, I understand Arminians. But am I going to... Wow, yeah, you know, the uh, Methodists, they got it. Am I going to convert? Am I going to change to Eastern Orthodoxy or Catholicism? Am I going to change my stripes? No. Do you know why? This is my tradition. The covenant is very similar to where I grew up in the holiness movement. This is my tradition. This is your tradition. In other words, you're in a tradition. We want to find God outside of our tradition. What I'm saying is, it's hard. It's harder. We have to be socially rooted beings. And I know this is starting to get like professor speak. I argue we can find God probably better in our own traditions than looking far off, you know, in some smoky lounge somewhere in Nepal or something. You'll find God in your own tradition. Stick with your tradition. But pastor, you still haven't gotten me convinced in Christ yet. How do we know? That's the third and last heading. How do we really know? I mean, leave me at the first heading. I want to believe in God, but why do I have to believe in the church and why do I have to believe in the Christ? And that's the third and last reflection. Would I consider believing in the Christ? Look, leave me at the first heading. I just want to believe God or great creator or higher power or great universe spirit. That's what I want. Why do I have to believe in the church and in Christ? Why do I have to arrive here? Let me use the words of Paul in verse 29. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think the divine natures like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent. He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness Listen to this, through a man, a man, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There's a leap that happens here. So, Almighty God, great spirit of the universe, wait, 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 a man? A dude? You're trying to equate the spirit of the universe with a dude, a man. I don't follow. And yet it makes perfect sense beautiful poetic sense. I was about 13 years old when I first had my doubts about God. And I was scared. Actually, I was, I, actually, I wondered if they were aliens. And then I wondered if aliens worshipped God. And then I wondered, if they don't worship Jesus, then maybe that undermines the whole premise of Christianity. That's just the way my young mind worked. And I asked my dad. And first my dad is like, oh my goodness, where did this boy come from? And then the second thing my dad said never left me to this day. He said, my boy, you think too hard. And he said, God is hard. You'll never figure him out. He's inscrutable. I'm just inserting words there, but God, you won't figure God out. Jesus is graspable because in Jesus you have 
everything that is God in a man. Now, I'm inserting more theological something. I mean, with this Korean accent, he pretty much said, God hard. Jesus, just look at Jesus. And he was so right. That's like, that's a theological treatise right there. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. In other words, you're looking for the just beneath the just. Right? I saw Hotel Rwanda. I'm going to go and save the world. You're looking for salvation beneath the salvation. I want to be like Frodo and I want to carry the ring, one ring around my neck and sacrifice for the whole of creation so that in the end everybody will bow and say thank you to the hobbits, right? Well, there was one who exemplified sacrifice and gave meaning to the notion of sacrifice. We lead the charge as millennials today and we say justice, social justice. There is a just beneath the justice. And here's my favorite. You just know what's good. You can't go around killing people. It's just wrong. There is good. I know it. I feel it deep in my being, whether you're 60 or 6, you know this. Right, kids? You just know. You know that there's good. Am I right? Please, tell me I haven't lost you by now. You just know that there's something in the world. You know that you know what good is. When somebody pushes your friend, wait, I feel like I saw this in a movie recently. Uh, I think I did. I can't remember, but somebody pushes a kid in the hallway, right? And you come up and you stand up to him. You just know that's good. And then you get beaten down. But you still know that there's something good and noble about that. Why? Because your spirit testifies to the spark that lives within you. There is good. Here is the clincher. Who embodies good more than Christ? Who embodies the good more than Christ? Christ is the good. When you read the Gospels, young people, read the Gospels, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the stories. Fall in love with Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus when everybody wants to kill the poor woman and he's drawing on the ground and he stands up and with a single word can say, go ahead guys, throw the first stone. See who can overpower the bullies. When there is one who will weep over Lazarus and say, I am the resurrection and the life, see the power of the one who is really good Fall in love with the person of Jesus. Would I consider believing in the Christ? My final apologetic and maybe the clincher is this. Look, you're looking for the good. I believe you will find good embodied. God is hard. Trying to believe in God. You find I've got the perfect answer today and tomorrow... <laughs> You have the perfect counter answer. Reason and logic will never prove that God exists because there will always be a better argument. But the one thing that stands is the gaze at the good, the person, the man, the man, Jesus Christ. And what you will find is God made simple, God made human, God with skin on. Look at Jesus Look at him in the Gospels. I conclude just by reading these last words. How did they respond? 
Paul said, I'd like to take an altar call now in Mars Hill. Just as I am, I come. And all the Greeks streamed forward with their eyes streaming, saying, yes, the perfect logical argument. It makes sense. I believe in Christ. That's not what they did. You know what they did? When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Friends, I cannot convince you with my words. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, you will not be convinced by my ration, by my logic. You will sneer. But in the end, you'll still be left looking for the good. Don't look at me. Look at the Christ. Really, I challenge you. I dare you. Read the Gospels of Christ, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See if you can walk away unscathed. See if you can walk away without giving Him your all and saying, I foundly found, I found what I've been looking for. I found it, found it. I'm going to give my entire life to it because I found it. That's how I became a Christian. I looked at the person of Christ and I found everything that I was looking for. May you find everything that you're looking for in the man, Jesus Christ. I dare you to look and to find what you've been looking for. Let's close our eyes. I'm not going to take an altar call, but I am going to give an invitation. If you are a Christian, if you are not a Christian, either way, would you give everything for that one missing piece of the puzzle? I have a puzzle in my living room. It's on this console table, and it's missing one piece. I, actually, I got that from the Sanus. Do, do you have that piece that I've been looking for? It's just a metaphor. Alyssa's like, I don't. Do you have the piece that you... That missing piece is a reminder to me. I'm like, it's perfect. You know why it's a perfect puzzle? Because it shows me that there's still that one nagging piece. I'm looking for it. I'm looking for it like a splinter in your conscience. You're looking for God. You know that you can't seem to fill that missing puzzle piece. Would you give, wouldn't you give everything, your life and your death, for that one last missing piece? If you can say yes to that, then I want to invite you to respond, and however you will. Whether it's raising your hands or standing, or looking up at the sky, or just quietly praying with me. I'm looking, but I'm finding that I would give anything, anything and everything for that one missing piece. Lord Jesus, at this time, you are the perfect being the reflection, the, the humanness of God, of the transcendent Almighty. It is to you that I pray right now. 
won't you shine the light of religion on the hearts of everyone who hears my voice right now? Won't you shine the light of religion and truth? Won't you shine yourself so that every person that hears, understands, believes will say, I'm sold. This, this deserves everything. This deserves an all-in move. And so, Lord, I'm going all in because I've been looking for this missing piece for a long time, and I hate that feeling of emptiness. I hate that splinter in my conscience, that missing puzzle piece, but I see it in you, God, Christ. So here I go, Lord. I'm all in. I'm all in. And if you just want to repeat, repeat that with me, just say that word quietly to yourself and pray now. I'm all in. I'm going all in. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.